Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 1, Castrati, Chaos, and Cow Sacrifices, the 3rd Century Roman Empire. What kind of world did 4th century Christians inherit as they began to turn towards the questions of doctrine that would dominate Nicaea? To answer that important question, we begin today with a look at life in Rome in the chaotic 3rd century, and how it paved the way for the merely turbulent 4th. So as we think about this, the first thing we have to remember is that the Christians of the Roman Empire lived in, well, an empire. You may remember from your history class that Rome began its life as a republic and continued to govern itself through an oligarchic senate even as its conquests began. However, by the time that we are studying, which is a period scholars usually call late antiquity, any memories of the Roman Republic would have been long since forgotten. Just for context, the events of Nicaea happen in the 300s AD. Of course, in this episode, we're backing up into the late 200s AD to ground ourselves. Now, Julius Caesar, the man who would transform the Republic into the Empire, was born in 100 BC. Which means that by this time, Rome had been an empire for longer than the United States has been a nation. So the Romans of this period are well accustomed to living under an emperor, and while they may groan and complain when a particularly bad one takes the reins of power, there really isn't much interest in political revolution during this period. The Romans may wish for a different emperor, but there seems to have been little desire not to be governed by an emperor at all. Now, within this empire, as in all empires, there were various factions, ethnicities, and rivalries all jockeying for power and influence and viewing each other with an ever-changing blend of cautious cooperation and deep suspicion. Now, one of the things I suggested in the introduction was that Nicaea had something to teach us about racial politics. But to understand what this is first, you have to know that your race meant something very different in the ancient world than it does today. Today, when we talk about somebody's race, we are usually talking about the color of their skin. That way of thinking about race didn't really exist until the modern era, sometime in the 14, 15, 1600s, depending on how you count it. When the Romans thought about race, they thought about it in terms of your language, your cultural heritage, and the ethnic group you were born into. So there wasn't a black race or a white race in antiquity. You were Punic or Frankish or Jewish or Greek or Libyan. Race was tied to your tribe and the identity of your client nation. It was not tied to the color of your skin. Now, you might be tempted to think that the most favored race in the Roman Empire was, well, the Romans, right? Isn't that usually one of the advantages of being an empire, is your people get to be on top? But that's actually not true by this point in history. The most important divide in the Roman Empire was not between native Romans and others. In fact, the Roman elite was remarkably open to the talents of administrators and generals from all across the empire and of all races. Rather, the differences in the Roman Empire 
were most prominent among class lines. Members of that elite caste, whether in Spain or Syria, were likely to have more in common with each other than they were with their peasant neighbors, and power increasingly lay in the hands of that class of dedicated civil servants rather than in the oligarchic Roman families of the previous centuries. Of course, this divide between elite and peasants also meant a gap in wealth between them, one that was widening considerably in this period in history. Yet, despite all of this change, the elites of the Roman Empire tended to dress themselves in the garb and style of past centuries, even as they moved into the future. If you like the class of the nouveau riche, really liked imitating those old aristocratic norms. It was, in other words, a rapidly changing empire trying very, very hard to maintain an image of changelessness. A sort of cultural crisis was brewing. Roman religion was a key part of this cultural crisis. Now, you are probably familiar with the basic Roman pantheon from your primary education, Jupiter, Minerva, Mars, and all the rest. These traditional deities continued to be worshipped throughout the empire, but to these deities were added new ones, most prominently the Roman emperors themselves. Ever since the death of Julius Caesar, whose successor had proclaimed him to have become a god upon his passing, Roman emperors of particular renown and acclaim could count on being worshipped as deities after their death. And worshipping them was not optional. The Roman Empire generally took an approach of addition rather than subtraction to the religious culture of the territories it conquered. In other words, the Roman Empire, as a general rule, didn't outlaw the worship of anybody's ancestral gods. They just required that you venerate the Roman pantheon as well, and were most especially interested in making sure that you venerated the emperor. Now, the theological rationale for this policy was that the Roman gods were supposed to protect the empire from military and natural disaster, watching over their people from on high in exchange for the worship and adulation and sacrifices they were supposed to get. So to not worship the protectors of Rome was to invite the gods' wrath upon them, which made one a traitor. Notice here how inseparable religion and politics really are. To be pious, to worship the Roman gods, is part of being a good citizen, and not being religious is tantamount to treason. Gods and kings are so closely aligned that you cannot malign one without risking the wrath of the other. Now, the Romans, in their characteristically organized fashion, made up a nice big calendar that helped you get all of your state religious obligations met with minimum hassle. This calendar had been in use since Augustus, the emperor in whose reign Jesus was born. Every year, on January the 3rd, the entire Roman military was required to swear an oath of loyalty to the emperor. That oath was called the Sacramentum, and it's the root word from which the English sacrament comes. Civilians were also required to swear oaths of loyalty to the emperor, though enforcement was more sporadic than it was in the military. Civilians didn't have to sacrifice very much in swearing this oath, perhaps burning a bit of incense in a ceremonial fire as they took their vows. In the military, on the other hand, you had to sacrifice cattle. Lots and lots of cattle. 
In most cultures, and Rome wasn't really an exception, cows are at the top end of the sacrificial wish list. They are the rarest and most expensive kind of sacrificial offering. Here's the way it worked. You give the cows to the priest. The priest kills the cows. A small portion of the cow's meat is burned upon the altar as a sacrifice to the gods. The remaining meat, in other words 98% of it, is carved up and given to the soldiers as a free steak dinner. You were not allowed to skip the free dinner, and you were definitely not allowed to skip the public vows and burnings that came before. This was a really big deal. The biggest sacrifice of the year, and it points out the militarization of state religion occurring under the empire. I mean, the biggest party of the year is the mandatory swearing of your oath to the emperor, and the worship of the divinized emperors of yore. Now, they're not the only ones getting worshipped. Jupiter also got worshipped at this ceremony. But the looming presence of the empire over the entire cult, and the easy equivalence of loyalty to the emperor with religious piety, is quite striking. It will probably not surprise you to learn that emperors were not terribly keen to wait until death to be hailed as a god. Remember when I said that Julius Caesar's successor proclaimed him a god? Well, the next thing that successor did was to proclaim himself the son of God, because he had been the adopted son of Julius. Quite convenient how that works out. And later emperors kept up that trend of self-divinization. They made all kinds of coins and tablets bearing their image that soldiers and citizens were expected to venerate. Now, technically, this veneration didn't count as worship per se. Each coin or tablet was dedicated to the divine qualities of the emperor. In other words, that latent power that would make the emperor a god upon his death. So you weren't technically venerating the emperor so much as you were venerating his divine qualities. But that distinction was probably lost on most of the military and public, which is exactly how the emperor liked it. Rome prided itself as being the most pious nation in the world, and the emperors loved nothing more than making sure that piety was focused on themselves. But if the emperors would enforce the worship of the traditional pantheon at sword point, that did not mean that the Romans were so exhausted from all of those sacrifices that they didn't have time to worship other gods. Far from it, in fact. The Roman Empire was a hotbed of various religious sects and practices. Now, most Romans were syncretistic in their outlook, which means they took bits and pieces from each god they liked in creating their own personal brand of faith and spirituality. It's quite similar to the way that many modern Americans like to reference a few tenets of Buddhism or Taoism or something about the law of karma, or even from Native American spirituality in describing their own personal worldview. Now, what Romans in the first few centuries AD were interested in in all of this religious seeking was salvation. Cults dedicated to the emperor and the preservation of the enormous but decaying empire didn't really capture the Roman imagination. They seem to have been very curious about the supernatural, about the mysteries that lay beyond the visible, conquerable, and, in their eyes, mostly conquered world. So they turned to a whole bunch of different gods who were purported to ease the passage from life to afterlife. 
there is probably no better example of this trend towards salvation and mystery religion than a god you probably already know about, the god called Dionysus by the Greeks and Bacchus by the Romans. For most of antiquity, Dionysus was the god of wine, partying, sexual excess, and insanity. Hardly a candidate for the god to put one's immortal soul to. Yet by the 3rd century, Dionysus was known as the god of virtue and secret knowledge of immortality. How did that change happen? That's an excellent question, and one whose answer we are not quite sure of. It probably didn't hurt that Dionysus had occasionally been identified with Osiris and with Hades, the Egyptian and Greek gods of the dead, respectively. If you want to learn how to have eternal life, there are worse teachers out there than the god who handles all the dead people. But most of those identifications happened way before the 3rd century, so they can't tell us why the change happened then. Being the god of revelry, drunkenness, and madness also probably kind of helped his case, because those things are linked to religious ecstasy. After all, wine can give you a wicked hangover, but before that, it can make you see God. Many late ancient Romans were much more interested in the latter of those things than the former. Another popular option for late ancient private worship was the god Mithras. Now, a lot has been made of the similarities between Mithras and Jesus, so let me recount the general story for you. Mithras was born on December 25th. Depending on which version of the story you read, he was born from a rock, an egg, a tree, or occasionally a virgin. Mithras was a sort of middle deity stuck in between a god of light and a god of darkness. Now, the very first creature to emerge in the universe was a bull, which Mithras killed, and the blood that flowed out from it provided the material for the creation of the world. After spending some time in this world defending humanity against various evil creatures and schemes, Mithras left the world on a solar chariot and became one with the sun. He was then hailed as Sol Invictus, Latin for the unconquered sun. Solar worship was a big deal in the Roman world, and quite a few gods get identified with this unconquered sun in their day, including Apollo, and, quite a bit later, Jesus. Now, there are some clear parallels between Jesus and Mithras in the story that I've described. Both are born in unusual circumstances, both are the saviors of humanity, both ascend out of this world into heaven, and in antiquity both get linked up to this unconquered sun motif. But there are also some pretty big differences. In Mithraism, the big image at the front of every sacred space is the bull killing, usually called the teroctomy. Mithras was a warrior who conquered by killing, not by being killed, and the redeeming blood that he spilled was the blood of his enemies, not his own. Mithraic theology also appears to have focused more on the motifs of his ascent and descent whereas Christianity's central image is the crucifixion and resurrection. The parallels between the two are intriguing, and they tell us what kind of images and doctrines resonated with the people of the time. There's also some interesting sociological comparisons between them. Mithraism seems to have done particularly well in the frontiers and heavily militarized parts of the Roman Empire, 
Christianity, by contrast, did well in highly populated cities, with adoption in the countryside and heavily militarized areas coming comparatively later in its history. But if someone tries to tell you that Christianity is just a copy of Mithraism, don't believe them. In fact, we're not even sure that Roman Mithraism is the older religion between the two of them. Now, Mithraism was built around a series of seven initiation rites, representing the seven planets known to the Romans. Only men could join, and many of those who did were military, who probably liked its ordered hierarchy. This, by the way, is probably one of the reasons Mithraism did so well in military bases and frontier towns. There was a big military presence there. Another reason why the military seems to have been attracted to Mithraism was that the initiation rite into each of those seven stages appeared to demand a quite military level of endurance and courage. Branding, or at least the threat of it, appears to have been part of the process. At one point, initiates appear to have been required to reject a crown while a sword was held at their neck, which would be enough to make anybody wonder just how steady the priest's hand was at the time. But, of course, men didn't get to have all the mystery cult fun. Worship of a great mother goddess, going by various names, was also quite common. In the 3rd century, the worship of Sibyl, an Anatolian goddess who had made her way to Rome some centuries before, was quite common. In fact, she was honored as part of the Roman pantheon and given a holiday on April the 4th. On that day, chariot races and plays were common, as were parades held in her honor. The parades included her order of priests, who were required to self-castrate before entering her service. They would drench themselves in perfume, think like emptying a whole bottle of cologne on yourself, and would join the parade wearing massive wigs and colorful robes, kind of like late ancient clowns, albeit smellier and less creepy. Actually, come to think about it, maybe more creepy. Yeah, definitely more creepy. Late ancient clowns, but creepier. Other goddess figures would also make their way to Rome, especially the Egyptian goddess Isis. Interestingly enough, Isis was often worshipped as a supreme divinity, even higher than Zeus or Jupiter. This was the sort of thing the Romans had a mixed reaction to, and Isis was one of the few gods or goddesses whose worship got banned for a while. But the Romans reneged and allowed it again, whereafter Isis was always a fixture in the Roman religious world. Now, in addition to all the religious differences lurking beneath the veneer of a uniform state-mandated polytheism, there was also an important division between the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire didn't have the consideration to take 21st century history podcasters into account, it divided its territories in such a way that the geographic distinctions between east and west don't map neatly onto the lines of modern countries. For example, the city of Alexandria, which is in the same location as modern-day Cairo in Egypt, is very firmly part of the Eastern Empire. But hop one country over to modern-day Libya, and you'll find it split right down the middle between the eastern and western halves of the empire. This geographical divide was also a linguistic one. In the east, the dominant language was Greek, while Latin predominated in the west. The eastern half of the empire tended to be a bit more cosmopolitan in orientation, and most of the best academies and schools within the empire were in the east. As a consequence, 
Eastern Romans generally knew Greek and at least some Latin. Western Romans were more often ignorant of Greek, as was famously the case with St. Augustine. The West also tended to be a little bit more rural and oriented towards agriculture. Now, you may be surprised by this. Hey, Ben, you might be thinking, isn't, you know, Rome in the eastern half of the empire? Are you saying that eastern cities were more important than the capital of the whole dang empire? And yes, imaginary listener, that is exactly what I am saying. By the third century, Rome is not really the heart of the empire anymore. See, Roman emperors at this point spend most of their time traveling across their lands trying to keep the whole thing together, and the whole imperial court traveled wherever they went. Now, the imperial senate was still based in Rome, but as the ancient history fans among you already know, the senate was basically a lame duck at this point. They had some ceremonial functions, sure, but ever since Julius Caesar had defied the senate and invaded Rome hundreds of years prior, the senate was basically reduced to rubber-stamping the emperor's decrees. Emperors had shown time and time again that they were willing to lop off senatorial heads if they got too disagreeable. And since most senators liked their heads staying on their necks, they tried to stay as agreeable as possible. The real center of power was that imperial court centered on the emperor, and it traveled with him whether he was in the east or in the west. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over the years contrasting the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire, and I will be spending a fair bit of time on this podcast knocking down simplistic distinctions between the two. The contrasts between them are usually more complicated than we make them out to be. For starters, there were plenty of cities in the west, and a fair number of educated professionals, too. And it's not as though the east was bereft of farmland. I mean, Alexandria was actually one of the major breadbaskets of the empire. Yet it is still true that the tension between East and West will be a recurring theme in our podcast, because it was a recurring theme for the Romans themselves. Their massive empire was unwieldy at the best of times, and even with the technology of the 21st century, it would be a challenge to manage the logistics of both halves of the empire. It would be these logistical challenges that ultimately drove the political split between the Eastern and Western Empire that we shall observe in this podcast, a political split that would have massive cultural consequences even down to the present day. The most important of these logistical questions in the East and in the West was food. How to get it, how to get it to the mouths that needed to eat it. That may not be terribly surprising to you. After all, every single nation that has ever risen to prominence has had to make sure its citizens are fed. But the question was especially important for Rome. First of all, because the Roman Empire was really big. By the year 300, there were probably some 55 million people living within its borders, which stretched from modern-day Britain in the north to North Africa in the south, and all the way from the Strait of Gibraltar in the west to modern-day Palestine and parts of Syria in the east. That makes for a lot of mouths to feed, and a lot of places for food to get to. There is another reason, though, why food was so important to the Romans, which was that Rome itself was remarkably food-poor. Now, that may surprise you, given the massive proliferation of Italian cuisine across the globe today, I mean, Italians have given us pizza on every street corner, 
pasta in every zip code. Italians are even winning Great British Bake Off. Yet the situation was quite different in ancient Rome, which is not the same thing as Italy. You see, the Mediterranean coasts near Rome are not ideal for farming, and the hills and mountains nearby were even less so. So from its inception, Rome had to find ways to get food from others. Historian Peter Brown famously said that, and I quote, The history of the Roman Empire is the history of the ways in which 10% of the population, who lived in the towns and have left their mark on the course of European civilization, fed themselves from the labors of the remaining 90% who worked the land. End quote. So how, then, was Rome to get all of this food that it so desperately needed? In two ways. By being super organized and super militaristic. Let's take those points in order. First, the super organized pit. It is hard to overstate the Roman Empire's genius for standardization and administration. As you may have heard it said, the Roman Empire was not known for being particularly original as far as empires go. Most of its political and religious ideals came from Greece, and there was little it had done that previous empires had not done before. What Rome did better than any empire before, and arguably better than any since, was to standardize, organize, and prefabricate its structures and ideals for easy transport across the entire empire. Now, the Romans caught a bit of a break in this regard because most of their empire was centered around the Mediterranean Sea. Water transport was much, much faster than land transport in antiquity, so having a giant body of water right smack dab in the middle of your empire was pretty helpful. A well-prepared and sufficiently plucky traveler could sail from one end of the empire to another in just under three weeks. It was also much cheaper to travel by water than by land. It cost less to sail grain across the entire Mediterranean Sea than it did to carry that same amount of grain a mere 75 miles over land. But, of course, water can only take you so far. To get from one point of land to another, the Roman Empire constructed the single greatest network of roads the ancient world had ever seen. Now, these roads served several functions. First, and most importantly, they enabled Roman troops to get quickly and efficiently from one place to another. Because the Roman Empire was so big, it was usually under threat on at least two of its fronts at any given time. Roman soldiers needed to be able to move quickly to respond to these threats, and they needed to be able to get necessary food and supplies there, too. Roads immensely reduced the headaches of these logistical exercises. Second, roads provided ways for merchants and private citizens to visit different provinces of the empire quickly and safely. People sometimes talk about the ancient world as if most people grew up with no knowledge of the world outside of their provincial hamlet, and as if news from one city hardly ever made it to another. Now that is simply not true in the case of ancient Rome. Its network of roads meant that news traveled pretty quickly from place to place. We know that Christians of this time would send letters from one end of the empire to another. Here's the way that would work. Usually they would have one person take the letter to a town they were visiting, and then hand it off to the local church there, who would find someone traveling to the next closest city to the destination, who would take it to the church there, and so on and so on until it finally reached its intended recipient. 
there's no reason to think Christians were particularly unique or unusual in this regard. This is probably what was done by everybody. It was also common for important letters to be read aloud by each church that got them along the way. So much for the privacy of the mail. Finally, Rhodes allowed Roman elites to congregate in little clumps around major cities, quickly bypassing miles of pastoral countryside. While the roads connected them to their fellow elites across the empire, they often disconnected them from the neighbors and subjects they could ignore in favor of the latest news and gossip from the regional capital. Rhodes did so much for the empire, which is why this is now a perfect time for a word from today's sponsor. The Road to Nicaea is brought to you by Rhodes. Have you ever wanted to go somewhere, see new sights, breathe some fresh air, follow that profoundly bearded wizard looking for someone to go on an adventure? Sure you have, we all have. But have you ever wished the great outdoors was a little more indoors? Don't you hate having to hack your way through a dense jungle or get lost in some dark forest? Have you ever lost boots in a swamp? Ugh. Or maybe your route takes you over hills the biggest scam in nature. You have to work harder to go up them and then do even more work just to come back down to where you were. Well, one neat invention can take all of that away. Try the Roman Road, a neat little bit of packed flat dirt or gravel that won't pull, push, and mesh, incline, or otherwise act any differently than your floors at home. With roads, getting places is just like getting to your sofa, only longer. Roads making the great outdoors a little more indoors since the beginning of the empire. Contact your local consul today and ask about our two-for-one invasion road construction offer. Limited time only, leading to Rome not guaranteed. The Roman travel infrastructure is part of what made the empire so effective, but only part. We must also give credit to the Roman military. Now, of course, every empire has an impressive army. That's kind of a prerequisite for being an empire. But the Roman army stands out even among this elite group. I said earlier that the Romans were mostly organizers and standardizers of other people's ideas. The military is one place where that generalization doesn't quite hold true. Romans invented several new ironworking tricks that meant their weapons and armor regularly outclassed those of their adversaries. Romans also adopted new military tactics that most of their enemies could not adapt to, including the deployment of small units of troops deployed in unique formations and able to act as semi-independent units. Romans also improved the design of the Greek ballista so significantly that they were able to mass-produce them, assigning them to every single legion of troops, often to devastating effect. Now, the Romans were in need of a big, powerful military to defend their large empire. One of the problems with having a large empire is that you have big borders. And since you have probably gobbled up all of your peaceful neighbors in the journey toward becoming an empire, the neighbors you have left are likely to be of the warlike variety. Rome had to contend with various Germanic and Frankish tribes in the north. Now, this period experienced uh, some significant climate change that often forced those tribes to move towards Rome's more fertile lands to survive. Like I said earlier, 90% of an empire, or even just a tribe, is figuring out how to feed everybody. Rome and the tribes fought some major battles during this period, 
but the disorganization and lack of unity in the tribes meant that not all problems were solved on the battlefield. Tribes would occasionally fight their way through the border, or unify into some giant pan-tribal amalgam that could challenge the Roman legions, but often as not, they would just sneak over the border into Roman land, settle down, and start farming. Nothing to see here, Mr. Legionnaire, just tending to my corn. The Roman government watched this immigration wave with wary eyes. They didn't particularly like the idea of all of these barbarians living on their land with small military forces that weren't answerable to the emperor and could, and sometimes did, go raiding good Roman settlements. By the way, the term barbarian to describe these people is one you're only going to hear me use in the mouths of other speakers. Barbarian is something of an ethnic slur. It was originally applied by the Greeks to non-Greek peoples because all other languages just sounded to them like a constant babble of bar-bar-bar. Ironically enough, the Romans would have definitely been considered barbarians by the Greeks, but instead of getting mad about it, the Romans did what they do best, took the term from the Greeks, and applied it to all of the non-Romans in the world instead. Because barbarian is a term of insult, I'm not going to use it as a describer for any ethnic group. But when I'm relaying the opinions of the Romans, I will use the term since, well, that's how they thought about their Frankish and Germanic migrant neighbors. The Roman military was less than thrilled at the prospect of these barbarians, in their words, living within their borders. And yet the alternative was to fight battle after battle with an enemy who would not quit because they needed the food on the other side of the border. So here's how the racial politics play out. The Roman military usually allowed those migrant settlements to be, albeit under close watch, and with much suspicion. But we are in the Roman Empire after all, and its many roads meant that the Roman elites who made military policy could be shuffled away from the rubes quite quickly in any case. The tribes would be allowed to stay, along with any of the other native country bumpkins to whom the elite caste gave only passing thought. Class appears somewhat to have trumped race here. But the military had more than barbarians to contend with. For Rome was not the only empire in town. To the east was the mighty Persian Empire, and they were always keen to expand their empire by taking a chunk out of Rome's eastern holdings. While we tend, at least in Western education, to talk about the Persian Empire far less than Rome, Persia really was Rome's equal, a truly worthy foe. Absent some unifying figure, those German and Frankish hordes couldn't really hope to best the Roman military in a protracted war. They were too disorganized, too poorly equipped, and too undisciplined in their war strategies to outdo the Romans. By contrast, the Persian Empire could regularly go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Roman military, and a few emperors lost their lives to Persian forces. The Persian Empire was also a place for builders. They built the first dam bridges and created new cities, many of them populated by disaffected Romans, including Christians, who were very tired of the sporadic persecutions they faced in Rome. And yet, while the Roman military was necessary to the Roman Empire's survival against these massive threats, it itself was also often the single biggest threat to that survival. 
You see, as the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire, the military became increasingly professionalized. Now, professional soldiers generally want to be paid for their hard work, and the Roman Republic rather famously had problems scrounging up enough coin to pay them all. They usually told soldiers to take whatever spoils they got from their victories and call that payment. That made soldiers loyal not to the central government, with its tight pockets, but to whatever charismatic commander could most convincingly offer them victory, good pay, and the hope of a prosperous retirement. That's how Julius Caesar was able to convince his soldiers to stick with him instead of the Roman Senate, and he was not the last emperor to rely on military support for legitimacy. In fact, by this period, it has become common for emperors to ascend to the throne after being hailed by their troops as emperor, implying that it was the military, not the government, that had the real power to make an emperor. Moreover, the military continued to become more detached from that old aristocratic class based in Rome. Aristocrats were prohibited from military command by 260 AD, and the military steadily grew more professionalized, more loyal to its commanders, and more in number, all the way through the 3rd century. If you are thinking that this sounds like a fantastic recipe for civil unrest and violent coup d'etats, well, you are exactly right. The 3rd century was not a great time to be in the Roman Empire, in no small part because charismatic leaders kept making power plays for imperial control. There was a pretty simple playbook for seizing control of the Roman Empire in those days, and it goes something like this. Step 1. Wait for the current Roman Emperor to die, or help him along if you're feeling impatient. Step 2. Have your soldiers declare you to be the new Emperor. If the previous Emperor was so rude as to name a legitimate successor who wasn't you, use propaganda, assassination, or sheer military might to remove them from the picture. Step 3. Fight off or buy off all rival claimants to the Imperial Purple who had the same idea that you did. Step 4. Enjoy your reign, and try to avoid a charismatic young general starting Step 1 with you. Step 4 usually did not last very long, as emperors of this period were usually better at seizing power than keeping it. During a 49-year period that historians rather ominously refer to as the Crisis of the 3rd Century, some 27 men claimed the title of Emperor. That, I think we can all agree, is simply too many emperors. A good number of those people reigned for a month or less, which gives you some sense of just how little chill anyone had at this point in history. So. That's Rome in the 3rd century for you. Beset on all sides, shrinking, jingoistic, yet still endowed with the raw power and organizational genius that political scientists admire even today. Where are our poor plucky Christians in the middle of all this? What are they doing in this chaotic 3rd century? Well, Turns out they were evangelizing like there was no tomorrow, and actually with quite a bit of success. The church did very well for itself in this third century, formalizing its leadership and hierarchy while winning a large chunk of new converts to boot. It's time to take a look at them. 
So next time, we'll turn our gaze to the 3rd century church. What internal struggles did it have to overcome to succeed as it did? Why did so many Romans find it appealing? And what biblical chapter scared the living daylights out of so many of them that they refused baptism until their deathbed? We'll talk about all that and more as the pathways of the early church converged into an historical trajectory that forced believers and non-believers alike completely unawares onto the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.